Greetings. This is Roger Kimball, the editor and publisher of The New Criterion, and it's my pleasure to join you today to say a few words about our April 2020 issue. Hot off the press, winging its way to your mailbox, and of course, as always, available online at www.newcriterion.com. I speak to you today not from our world headquarters in New York City, but from a semi-secure, undisclosed location, whence we have betaken ourselves to wait out the coronavirus. I apologize if the audio quality is not quite up to the high studio standards of our usual fare. As longtime readers will know, April is a month that the new criterion celebrates the art of poetry with a special section devoted to the subject. This year, in addition to a new translation of an important poem by Paul Valéry, we have essays on some letters of Antony Hecht, on the poet Jane Kenyon, a fascinating essay on Robert Frost, Edward Thomas, and Walter de la Mer, a fascinating essay about a poet I did not know, A.M. Klein. And finally, I'd like to mention the really fine essay by our poetry editor, Adam Kirsch, on T.S. Eliot. Of course, the issue also includes essays on theater, art, music, the media, and what I think is an especially strong books section, with essays by D.J. Taylor, Mark Falcoff, David Price Jones, Timothy Fuller, and others. I think it's a bang-up issue, and I hope you enjoy reading it as much as we did putting it together. Now I'd like to read you our notes and comments from this issue. It's called Cancel Culture Come Stalkery. At the new criterion, when we hear the name Woody Allen, we think first not of his movies, but of an anecdote that Hilton Kramer, our founding editor, liked to tell. Attending a dinner at the old Whitney Museum on Madison Avenue and 75th Street, Hilton was pleased to find himself seated next to an attractive and agreeable young woman. Woody Allen was also in attendance, but he was on the opposite side of the table, facing a large window that looked out upon the street. Of course, the window also looked in upon the diners. Allen announced that he could not abide being seen by anonymous passers-by and insisted that he change places with the young lady. Settling into his new chair, he asked whether Hilton ever felt embarrassed when he met socially artists whom he had criticized in print. No, Hilton replied, why should I? They are the ones who made the bad art. I just described it. Allen, Hilton recalled, lapsed into gloomy silence. It was only on his way home that Hilton remembered that he had written a highly critical piece on The Front, a PC movie about the Hollywood blacklist in which Allen acted. That anecdote encapsulates something essential about Hilton's practice as a critic. His focus was always on the work, not on the personality of the artist. It also encapsulates something essential about the querulous and brittle narcissism of the filmmaker. Woody Allen, although he continues to crank out movies, is a much diminished presence on the cultural scene when compared to the Woody Allen of the 1970s 
and early 1980s. But last year, he nevertheless found himself caught up in the hashtag MeToo hysteria when Amazon backed out of a four-film deal, alleging that Alan, quote, made a series of public comments suggesting that he failed to grasp the gravity of the issues or the implications for his own career, end quote. According to Amazon, Alan's tort was twofold. First, he was said to have expressed sympathy for Harvey Weinstein, then at the beginning of his downfall. He also accused his adopted daughter, Dylan Farrow, of, quote, cynically using the hashtag MeToo movement when she had publicly repeated allegations that Alan had abused her when she was a child. Fast forward to early March 2020. The Hachette Book Group suddenly announced that its grand central publishing imprint would be bringing out Apropos of Nothing, a memoir by Alan, in early April. In an interview, Michael Peach, Hachette's CEO, noted the controversy surrounding Alan, but said that, quote, Grand Central Publishing believes strongly that there's a large audience that wants to hear the story of Woody Allen's life as told by Woody Allen himself. That's what they've chosen to publish. A few days later, a group of Hachette employees staged a walkout to protest the book's publication. The next day, Hachette announced that it was hopping onto the cancel culture bandwagon and dropping the book. Quote, the decision to cancel Mr. Allen's book was a difficult one, said a spokesman for the publisher. So difficult, it took 24 hours to achieve. At HBG, the notice continued, we take our relationships with authors very seriously and do not cancel books lightly. We have published and will continue to publish many challenging books. Translation, Hachette, as Oscar Wilde said in another context, can resist anything except temptation. Just so long as a book does not attract the ire of the politically correct establishment, the firm is all for publishing challenging books. Item, Commandant of Auschwitz, a memoir by Rudolf Hoefs, is published by Hachette. But trespass on that PC orthodoxy and watch the capitulation leavened by moralistic hand-wringing begin. As Groucho Marx is supposed to have said, these are my principles. If you don't like them, I have others. Our interest in Woody Allen is minimal. Yes, his early movies and writings are funny. Then he discovered Ingmar Bergman. The quantum of pretension and narcissistic self-seriousness proceeded to swamp the comedy. For us, the prospect of wading through a, quote, comprehensive account of Woody Allen's life, both personal and professional, as Hachette put it, when the publishing skies were sunny, is queasy-making. But Hachette had determined that many readers would be interested in Allen's life story. They simply forgot to check with the feminist commissars to see if Woody Allen passes muster in the age of hashtag me too. He doesn't. Allen like many celebrities, has maintained a complicated personal life. In 1980, he started a long affair with the actress Mia Farrow, the former wife of both Frank Sinatra and Andre Previn. 
Alan and Pharaoh dated for more than a decade, but never lived together. The pack of children, mostly adopted in the Pharaoh household, is hard to keep straight. For this story, the important figures are Moses, whom Pharaoh adopted after her divorce from Previn, and whom Alan himself adopted in 1991, and a daughter called Dylan, whom Pharaoh adopted in 1985. Alan also adopted her in December 1991. And then there is Satchel, born in 1987, whom the world knows by one of his middle names, Ronan, the New Yorker writer who specializes in investigating other people's sex lives, real and imagined. Ronan, Mia Farrow acknowledged, might, quote, possibly be the biological son of Frank Sinatra, with whom she, quote, never really split up. Physiognomists would not find that surprising. That Alan paid child support for Ronan for years usually goes unmentioned. There's also Sunyi Previn, an abandoned South Korean girl whom Pharaoh and Previn adopted in 1978 when she was about eight. Alan raised eyebrows in 1992 when he began an affair with Sunyi, then in her early 20s. He and Pharaoh split acrimoniously. In 1997, Alan and Sunyi married. So far, it is just the usual Hollywood sex circus. But around the time that Pharaoh and Alan split, he was accused of touching Dylan, then seven, inappropriately. Alan has always denied it. The facts remain somewhat murky. Connecticut's prosecutor ultimately declined to pursue the case, despite announcing that he had probable cause to do so. The state police referred the case to the Yale New Haven Hospital Child Sex Abuse Clinic, which concluded that, quote, Dylan was not sexually abused by Mr. Allen. The lead doctor of the clinic said under oath that Dylan, quote, either invented the story under the stress of living in a volatile and unhealthy home, or that it was planted in her mind by her mother. Dylan has periodically revived the charge against her adoptive father. Moses Farrow and Sun Yi have taken Allen's side. Ronan, whose book Catch and Kill was published by another imprint at Hachette, has led the charge against his estranged father. Quote, Your policy of editorial independence among your imprints, he thundered in an email to Michael Peach, does not relieve you of your moral and professional obligations as the publisher of Catch and Kill and as the leader of a company being asked to assist in efforts by abusive men to whitewash their crimes. But there are no crimes. There are only allegations. Even after two lengthy investigations, Allen was not charged. As the world saw during the course of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings, the principle of innocent until proven guilty has been replaced with innocent until accused. It is a poisonous development. In this context, it is worth noting that Ronan Farrow used his perch at the New Yorker to attack Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings, adding fuel to the fire started by the fantasist Christine Blasey Ford. It was he, in a piece co-written by Jane Dark Money Mayer, who introduced the world to Deborah Ramirez, one of the women who, 
Once Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court was announced, half or quarter remembered with coaching some drunken party at which Kavanaugh may or may not have been present when he, or possibly someone else, made lewd advances to her. Michael Avenatti also tried to bring forward hazy accusers. In a long and thoughtful blog post published in May 2018, Moses Farrow laid out the particulars of the Farrow-Allen melodrama as he understood them. He paints a very different picture from that offered by Mia, Ronan, and Dylan Farrow. For one thing, after meticulously reviewing the details of Allen's relations with his family, he concludes that, quote, I never once saw anything that indicated inappropriate behavior at any time. Regarding Allen's relationship with Soon Yi, he notes that they, quote, rarely even spoke during her childhood. It was my mother who first suggested when Soon Yi was 20 that Woody reach out and spend time with her. He agreed, and that's how their romance started. When the affair went public, Many were appalled that Allen should be involved with his, quote, stepdaughter. But Moses observes that Sunyi was, quote, not Woody's daughter, adopted, step, or otherwise. He acknowledges that the affair was, quote, unorthodox, uncomfortable, disruptive to our family, and it hurt my mother terribly. But the relationship itself was not nearly as devastating to our family as my mother's insistence on making this betrayal the center of all of our lives from then on. According to Moses, after discovering Allen's affair with Sun Yi, Mia Farrow embarked on a campaign of vilification against them both, quote, drilling it into our heads like a mantra. Woody was evil, a monster, the devil, and Sun Yi was dead to us. He goes on to describe a horrifying regimen of physical and psychological abuse meted out against the children by his mother. There was also this, quote, My mother, of course, had her own darkness. She married 50-year-old Frank Sinatra when she was only 21. After they divorced, she moved in to live with her close friend, Dory Previn, and her husband, Andre. When my mother became pregnant by Andre, the Previn's marriage broke up, leading to Dory's institutionalization, end quote not exactly marmy and little women. Reflecting on the decision to cancel Woody Allen's book, Suzanne Nozell, the CEO of PEN America, noted sadly that, quote, the end result might well be that, quote, readers will be denied the opportunity to read it and render their own judgments. But of course, that is precisely what cancel culture is all about, deploying the mob to replace freedom and opportunity with stultifying moral disapprobation. Thank you very much. This is Roger Kimball signing off for the new Criterion. We look forward to seeing you next month.